I certainly appreciate BCM. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of preaching right after a tuba solo. <laughs> preaching following a grenade launcher is fantastic. <laughs> no, beautiful music. Certainly enjoy it. And uh, I, I do know it's a bassoon. So, uh, but uh, never hurts to imagine otherwise. Recently, in my family devotions, I figuratively and literally dusted off an old book that had been purchased a number of years ago, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but you bought a book on a recommendation and uh, got through the preface and part of the first chapter, and then it, it just sat. And um, unfortunately, this book, I actually purchased it all the way back in 2003, so it, it, it sat for a very long time. Uh, but Dusted it off recently and began reading the story of John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, uh, the island group now known as Vanuatu. And in uh, reading his story, I, I had a number of times had been impacted by the story of uh, Patton's parting with his father. And maybe you've um, heard that reference. I know not too long ago, Pastor referenced that, where uh, just the, the father son connection that John Patton enjoyed with his father, and his father not a, a man of wealth or means or even high education. He was a, um, a stocking maker, so he, he uh, I don't know if he knitted them or exactly how he made them, but made socks, and uh, that was his calling in life, but a man who walked with God, who loved the Lord, and whose secret was in the closet, and uh, he uh, shared just a, a love for the Lord with his children and saw many of them go on to do great things for the Lord and had been challenged by that story and even of John Patton's parting with his father as they uh, went as John the son came of age and headed off to the next phase of his life. He and his father walked for some distance in conversation and at times in, in just silence as they realized they were going to be parting and then as they embraced, at the designated point, John continued on, and his father turned and, and or stood there watching until John had disappeared around a corner. And as John continued down the road, he, he looked back at one point. He climbed upon a dike and, and looked, and he saw that his father had done the same. And his father, not seeing him, uh, turned. And just, just the, the love between a father and son and the reality of that, I had heard that and had been challenged by that a number of times. But then in actually reading beyond the first chapter and reading beyond that, uh, I've been deeply encouraged, both for myself as well as for my family, by the reality of a man who, yes, he had a great ministry in Vanuatu, in, in New Hebrides, the South Pacific, a island group where many missionaries before Mr. Patton had gone, and they didn't return. They became lunch for the natives. And uh, John Patton knew that was very much a possibility for him. Uh, but before he ever got there, as a college student, he had... Uh, great usefulness and great effectiveness for the Lord in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, and, and among other locations throughout, but especially in the city of Glasgow. And uh, just my heart was challenged and stirred and encouraged with that reality of here you have a guy who's training for the ministry, but he's not waiting for a ministry that someday will be. He's actually actively engaged in it in the moment, and God is using him. And if if time permits, I'll, I'll read some of the stories as, as a conclusion to our message this morning. But it was really on the basis of God working in my heart along those lines that uh, challenged me. And 
I think the challenge of the book could be similar to the challenge of the stewardship video from this past couple of weeks ago when we heard testimony of what God did in 2018. And just to be reminded of God's faithfulness, of his working, of the things that he's done, and the reality of what he wants to do again. And realizing, all right, as God has done it there, done it then, he wants to do it here, he wants to do it now, and he, if he didn't do it for you last year, he certainly wants to do it this year. And as the message unfolds here, as, as we get into our text for today, I want you really to pray, as I believe it was Jana on the video who a year ago cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I want you to use me right now. And uh, the testimony of what God is using her for and, and others, but God wants to use each one across this room in a powerful way, even right now. Not someday, then, somewhere, but right here, right now, today. The title of the message is taken from a military term. Today's message is going to be titled, Rules of Engagement. And as I was discussing this message with my wife last night, who's actually out of town right now, I was talking on the phone with her, and I gave her my, my title, and I had to assure her, no, this is not the title of a message intended for juniors, seniors, and seminary students. <laughs> it really is a message for all of us. The Rules of Engagement um, is a military term, often called ROE, R-O-E, developed from that convention that you are probably familiar with, the Geneva Convention, which actually wasn't a single point in time, but a series of meetings where, as European powers realized that when you just decimate all of your soldiers and all of your civilians, you're really in a bad spot after a war, or after a conflict, and there were some very bloody conflicts in the 1860s in Europe, and it was kind of in the, the aftermath of some of that, even some of the reality of our own American Civil War, where there began to be a development of a code of conduct and, and ethics and rules and, and how you would carry yourself. And interestingly enough, Germany, Japan, and the United States all signed onto one of the Geneva Conventions um, in 1929, I believe was the year. And uh, yet, um, not everybody kept their part of the deal in the conflict that was to follow. So just because there is a convention and there are rules of conduct or rules of engagement doesn't mean that everyone is going to follow it. America has at times bent over backwards to make sure that we, we do follow that. And certainly the uh, lessening of loss of life is an important thing and that's not the main focus of where we're going today. But it, as we look at the spiritual battle and we realize the fact that we are in a battle, there are rules of engagement that we need to em embrace. And this really isn't going to be a parallel to the rules of the Geneva Convention of make sure you, you engage this way and, and, and you limit the loss of life and, and you're watching out for civilians. We're not really looking at it from, from that angle even in a spiritual way, but, but we are going to take just that idea of there are rules that we need to embrace as we enter the spiritual battle that is before us. And we are in a battle. If you spend any time listening to any news at all, you realize that there is a battle that is raging. We don't need the news to tell us that. The Bible informs us that we are in a battle. And it tells us to be prepared. It tells us to, uh, to put on the whole armor of God and, and to move forward. But the Bible also tells us that we are more than conquerors and we are on the victory side. And so God's plan for each one of us is that it wouldn't be a matter of, well, let's, let's slug it out to the end and, and praise the Lord, heaven is our destination, and let's, let's just make it there. Rather, we can have victory as we progress through this life and, and really experience the full reality of all that the Lord has for us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 is not our text, but it talks about how the Old Testament is given for our, exa our examples. That we could uh, realize these stories and these realities from the Old, the Old Testament and from saints who trusted God in the past as an encouragement for what God is wanting to do in our lives today. And so, not pulling necessarily from John Patton anything more than a couple of il illustrations, but certainly we could talk about his life and be encouraged. But I want us to go to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter number 14. And looking at the life of Jonathan, pull a number of things that would be rules, four rules, that we must understand as we engage in spiritual warfare. And this is warfare both offensive and defensive, as we would advance into um, taking ground and seeing the Lord deliver and uh, souls saved and people reached and fruitful ministry, God is wanting each one of us to have that reality, but also in that internal deliverance and that, that ability to defend against Satan's attacks, whether it be in sins of omission or commission and things that we know we shouldn't do or that we know we should do and we're not doing, God's wanting to give deliverance and all of that. And these rules are applicable on both sides of that equation because they are applicable to the warfare in which we are engaged. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're actually going to read a good section of this passage just to get a flow of what is taking place here. And I'll, as we look at this narrative, after we read it, I'll make a, a number of application points as we look at the fact that there are these, these four rules that we need to understand. Beginning with our reading in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse number 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. Now, these locations, just to put it on a map for you maybe, are north of Jerusalem. If you can imagine that sliver of Israel, you've got Jerusalem, and just, just north of Jerusalem is where you're going to find Gibeah and Michmash and some of these places that are being mentioned, Michmash and Migron. Migron is a little bit of a question mark exactly where it's located, but not real far from Michmash. And that, that'll help us as we, under, as we continue through the narrative here. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozaz, and the name of the other, Sina. I don't know if you name your rocks. I grew up out in the, the <laughs> desert of uh, New Mexico, and uh, naming rocks is, is actually a fairly common practice. In fact, I lived in a town, or community called Standing Rock. And uh, you, you just take, there's a ship rock not too far away. There's a window rock. There are, uh, there's round rock. There, there's all kinds of, you know, just rock names in, in the vicinity of the desert. And so I, I get it. Maybe, maybe you don't, but, but they, they named their rocks. And uh, Bozes is uh, arguably a uh, shining point is, is possibly what it means. And the other Migron is, I'm sorry, uh, Sina is um, a thorn or um, a, a sharp point. So if, if that's what it means, that's there just for, for what it's worth. 
Continuing on, verse 5. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, was about twenty men, within, as it were, in half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. Lord, would you bless this message? I pray that you would take and uh, just the truth that you've burdened my heart with, communicate it very clearly to each one. And I pray that we would understand the fact that we are in a battle, but you have uh, won the victory. And that victory is a real reality for us today. And I pray that we would embrace it. We'd be encouraged in our walk with you. And Lord, each heart here would be encouraged with what you're wanting to do in this year ahead. I pray these things in your name. Amen. These four rules. Number one, we must realize and remember that we are in a battle. Now that's maybe obvious in the context of 1 Samuel chapter 13, chapter 14. We read much of it, though it was becoming easy for King Saul and, and the Israelites to just begin to accept, well, this is the way of life. The Philistines have uh, limited what we can do, and we'll look at that in just a moment, but it was becoming, well, this is just the way of life. And indeed, the battle that was before them was real, and it was very scary. If you turn back to 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 and 2, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, he chose 3,000 men. So verse 2 of chapter 13, you, you see the stage being set. Saul chooses 3,000 men, 2,000 to be with him, 1,000 to be with Jonathan, and they are entering into, all right, now we are going to defend our country. It sounds like a good scenario. I tell you, come to verse 5 of chapter 13, where you have the enemy that they are up against. Verse 5 of chapter 13, the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Avon. All right, so you have the, the scene set and the reality that a battle is being pitched and you've got Saul and his army of 3,000 facing 30,000 and 6,000 and then an infantry that couldn't be numbered. And it just seemed as if this is impossible. The battle continued, and if you bookend this story in chapter 14, verse 52, the last verse of chapter 14, we see that there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. So all of his days, this 
battle against the Philistines raged, and never was he able to fully subdue, never was he able to fully drive out. And it continually came back and ultimately led to his death. But for us to understand that we are in a battle and to realize that it's, it's not necessarily us versus culture and, and we're going to win a cultural war or us versus, no, it's, it's not that, but there is a battle raging and behind culture is a God of this world who doesn't love you and who is going to play dirty and who is defeated but who is at war with Christ and with those who follow him. And that battle for us is real and we must understand it. On July 21st, 1861, 30 miles from Washington, D.C., the first battle of Bull Run and really the first battle of, of the Civil War was fought. That battle is known, you might know it, as the Picnic Battle. It just happened to be close enough to Washington, D.C. that senators and others from the D.C. metropolitan area could actually observe what was taking place. Abraham Lincoln had been under uh, some duress to just, let's, let's just get to battle and get this over with. And uh, the Union soldiers that had signed up at that point were extremely green, and they had all signed up for a 90-day conflict. And so they, they headed out. We're going to be in Richmond by nightfall was kind of the, the thought. And they, they headed out, and the senators and others, uh, socialites and different ones from uh, Washington, D.C., and I didn't print the page, but you can actually go on to Senate.gov and uh, find a, a page from the annals of, of Senate history. Maybe not the, the most glorious day in our U.S. Senate, but uh, it details where even senators, and it gives the names of different ones and what happened to them. One guy was out passing out sandwiches to his colleagues when the buggy that he had just left, and his sam you know, he had more sandwiches sitting in the buggy, and it got blown to smithereens. And so he had to find a, uh, somebody's stray mule in order to escape, and other senators escaped. Only one senator ended up making it to uh, Richmond that evening, and that was a senator from New York who was captured as a prisoner of war. And so he made it to Richmond, but there, there, there was a misunderstanding and really a grave mistake that was made by the Union Army and by the senators that day as they feared, you know what, we'll, we'll just attack, we'll hit hard, and the Confederate forces will fall back, and victory will be certain, and this is not going to be an extended conflict. It'll be, it's a picnic. And they, they brought their opera looking glasses so they could watch it. And then it became very apparent as the afternoon turned. And what was once a nice hill for watching the battle unfold below them became a scene of great chaos as the advancing army, the Confederates, they weren't being discriminate of, oh, these are the senators, let's watch out for them and make sure we stay off the, no. It became a place of if you didn't get out of the way, uh, you were going to be caught up in the fray, possibly even killed. And there were a number of spectators that were killed that day including and then those that were captured and taken back to Richmond. But there, in that first battle of Bull Run, the, the lack of understanding that there was a, a full-on war that was taking place. And, and though we might chuckle and, and just even considering that, you know, it, it's, what were they thinking? Uh, yet how often are we as believers caught off guard with the fact that, no, we are on a battle. And the enemy has tactics, and the enemy is, is going to attack, and the enemy is going to come against us. And we need to be prepared for that. Not that we need to be fearful of it, but we need to be prepared. We need to understand. 
And for those senators, which ironically, um, the majority of the senators, as they fled the scene, swore that they would never look upon the field of battle again. They're great uh, courage men. Tell you what, let's, let's send our, our men to battle. But there were a number who said, not for me. I am going to uh, flee for my life, and I will stay within the safety of Washington, D.C. And thankfully for their sakes, Washington, D.C. was not sacked at any point, and they were able to, to remain safe. But indeed, war is an ugly thing. But we are in a battle. For Jonathan and the people here in Israel, let's, let's understand some of the enemy's tactics. The concluding verses of chapter, nine, of chapter 13, verses 19 and following, talk about how there was not a smith in the, city, or in the, in the, uh, the country of Israel. The Philistines had worked to demoralize the people. They had worked to bring them to a point where they realized there's nothing that we can do. We can't even sharpen our own axes and our own plows and, and the different tools that we need just, just to plant corn and to, to live and to exist. We can't even do that. Um, there's no way that we could then go against an enemy, especially when you look at the numbers. There, there's no way that we could do this. And one of the tactics of that enemy was to demoralize them, to get them to a spot where they were so fearful and so assuming of the fact that victory was completely out of their reach. There was nothing that they could do except for live with the status quo. Live in a place of defeat. Live substandard of what God's plan for them was. Which, by the way, it's worth at this point noting, what was God's plan for Israel? If you turn back to Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus 26, we have here a promise from the Lord as His people would follow Him. First couple of verses talk about don't make graven images, don't follow false gods, which when you consider the one true God versus an idol, why would you even consider bowing down to an idol and yet... Before we condemn the Israelites for doing what they did and following idols, might we consider our own lives and those things that distract us, those things that keep us from serving the one true God. Then, as they followed the Lord and obeyed Him, He promised to give them rain. He promised to give them fruitfulness in their harvest. He promised to give them peace in the land. Verse 7, ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. When you consider the enemy's tactics of scaring them and, and putting fear in their hearts and demoralizing them, there was, on the part of the Israelites, a failure to remember God's promises to them and the fact that God's plan for them was not a plan of defeat but a plan of victory. And that plan is the plan that is available for us. As we understand the fact that we are in a battle, God is wanting us to be successful. But not only does the enemy have a tactic of demoralizing and, and getting us down, he also has a tactic of condescending. Chapter 14, when the men, uh, when Jonathan and his armor bearer approached to the garrison of the Philistines, Verse 11, both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. Dropping down to verse 12, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. So you have this sense of the enemy just looking down, and you know, they're, they're extremely demoralized. They have no, no, no weaponry. And the enemy is saying, Ah, look at them. They're like a bunch of rats coming out of their holes. Come on up here, and we'll show you something. 
We'll show you a thing or two. And just that, that condescending nature. And there is going to be a time if, if you're trying to uh, interact with the enemy in a way that gives you a sense of status or belonging. And, and the fact that I'm preaching here on a college platform, there's going to be, men a temptation. I want to fit in or I want to be accepted. Don't go there. Truth doesn't need to be put on a palatable position where, okay, this could be accepted now by those who would stand against truth or those who would stand against your stand and the faith that God has brought you to. No, stand boldly, understanding that the enemy is not going to accept truth when it's more palatable to them. They're going to look down. They are going to be condescending. But as Jonathan... Coming now to focus in upon him and his armor bearer, he understood the conflict that they were in. He understood the reality of the battle. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, understanding the, the tactics of the enemy, went forward. And that brings us to the second rule of battle that we must remember. In verse number six, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And you have refrains similar to that throughout the Old Testament. As men chose to follow God with a heart of faith, God delivered every time. And as much as there were real Philistines and a real army with real swords and a real desire to absolutely destroy Israel and to absolutely destroy Jonathan and his armor bearer, Jonathan understood the battle is not simply a matter of who has the most swords. It's not simply a, a game of risk. If you've ever played risk, okay, whoever has the, the biggest army is going to win. No, it's, it's not so much that. Jonathan understood the battle is God's. And he is very capable of saving by a few as he is by saving by many. And Jonathan kept a spiritual perspective even in the midst of very real physical opposition. And he said, by God's grace, he will deliver us as we step out in dependence upon him. That second rule, we must maintain a spiritual perspective just as Jonathan did. And as he and his armor bearer went forward, Jonathan demonstrates his dependence upon the Lord. He says, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And they go between those two, sharp, those two rocks that are named and they discover themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm playing king of the hill... I like the vantage from the top, not the bottom. And yet, Jonathan and his armor bearer understood, if God be for us, he will deliver regardless of what the terrain looks like, regardless of whether or not it makes sense. And he, he did set out a little bit of a fleece, but here, here's, the, here's the qualifier. If God wants us to proceed, if, and this is, this is the steps that we will, these are the steps that we will take. If God gives us a green light, to go. And so they, they laid it out. And when they discovered themselves to their enemy, their enemy did exactly what Jonathan said, okay, if, if they do this, we're going. They said, come on up here, guys. We'll show you a thing or two. Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and said, all right, we're going. And they advanced even against, you know, even, even just in how they were going up the hill. It says they had to clamber up on their, their hands and their, their feet. 
and uh, not really a good defensive position to be going as a, as a military tactic. But they got up on top of that plateau. And as they go up, consider this third point. After the men of the garrison in verse number 12 said to them, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. We must, the third rule, we must develop a victorious expectation. Jonathan hadn't defeated, and if, if Jonathan was to step back and think for a moment exactly what he was doing, there was no way that he was going to win from a human military perspective. And there's a reason that King Saul was cowering under a pomegranate tree. There was no way that victory was possible. But Jonathan kept a spiritual perspective, and he kept an expectation of victory. And he advanced, and he said, all right, God has given the green light that we are going to go. I am trusting him for it. And his armor bearer, who had already told him, Jonathan, I'm following you. I'm with you. You go, I go. You die, you know, we're, we're together. But his expectation wasn't one of, okay, we're going to our death. No, it was an expectation of victory. We will win. And so up they went. Uh, Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they, the enemy, fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men, within, as it were, in half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. And this was something a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more than just, well, Jonathan somehow got the upper hand and, and was, no, God delivered God honored the faith of this individual. And in a time of Israel's history where there was a lack of faith and there was a lack of confidence, God delivered miraculously. And that is exactly what God is wanting to do for us today. And because, and this brings us to our fourth and final rule, because Jonathan was willing to keep a spiritual perspective in the midst of a very real battle, and he had an expectation of victory, his Faith led to faith in others. And for each one of us, when we develop and we step out in faith, we can be confident that our faith is going to lead others to faith. Verse number 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim. Not exactly a picture of courage. All the men that had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto beth -Aben. We must understand that faith leads to faith, just as certainly that unbelief will breed unbelief. And as we are called to stand in the gap, as we are called to advance courageously in the face of opposition, we need to understand that we don't stand alone. We, we stand, and what I mean by that is we, we certainly have the Lord on our side. But we have others who are going to be watching, others who are going to be challenged, others who are encouraged by our faith. Consider the opening illustrations of John Patton, or even of the testimonies on that stewardship video where we realized, all right, God did it, and he desires to do it again. 
Let us be a group of people who will stand boldly and advance courageously, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of persecution. It may be coming. Would we like a preacher who stood before King Louis XI? His name is Oliver Millard. The king was offended by his preaching, and he sent a messenger to the preacher. The king sent a messenger to the preacher and said, Would you tell that preacher, if he continues to say the things that he says, like he says them, and, and part of it was uh, Oliver had, uh, I don't know, pastor, or, you know, Mr. Miller had, had um, gone directly against the king and had confronted him on a number of different things. And so the king, in, in a rage, said, You tell him, if he continues to preach like that, he will be drowned in the river. End of story. And the man responded to the messenger, The king is the master to do what he pleases. But tell him that I shall reach heaven by water faster than he will with all of his fast horses. And with that courage and even a little bit of just tactful reply, uh, the king was taken aback and, and he, the, the preacher was allowed to continue to preach in, in freedom. The, the king said, you know, I'm not going to mess with that. That's not always the case in persecution. But there you had a man who stood courageously in the face of a very real threat, a very real uh, Concerned to the safety of his body, and he said, you know, I'm going to proclaim truth. And if I pay the ultimate price for it, where will it take me but heaven? And I'll get there faster. And it actually was a little bit of a, uh, a reference to the king's fast horses. He enjoyed horses and, and was developing stage, you know, a, a postal system and different things in, the, the, um, in his country. And the uh, gentleman said, you know, you may have fast horses. You may be developing a lot of things. My God will deliver, and if it's through death, I'll make it to heaven a whole lot faster than you're ever going to make it there on, on your fast horses. And, and the reality is, as we consider the fact we are in a battle, that we must maintain a spiritual perspective and an expectation of victory, as we have those three keys in place, that fourth rule, that fourth reality, that faith is going to encourage faith. Would we step out in dependence upon our Savior who has won the victory and who wants us to enter into the battle that is before us and experience the victory that he has for us? The quick, I won't read it because of, of time, but it's, it's about a page long. In the city of Glasgow, as John Patton was making a difference in the red light district, an area that was kind of designated. No, no preacher could go there and succeed. Nobody should go there. And he said, well, let me, let me take and, and have a shot at it. And after a period of time, it seemed like there were, was very little fruit. It was about a year into it that he was going to be relieved of his position and moved to another place. Um, and, and he just cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, you've, you've brought me to this place for this reason at this time. I need you to break through. And God began a breakthrough. And the story is told of two different infidels, two different men who were very blatant in their opposition of God. And one man, upon his deathbed, one infidel lecturer in the district became very ill, and his wife called me in to visit him. He was possessed, or he, he had a circulating library of infidel books by which he sought to pervert unwary minds. And though he had talked and lectured much against the gospel, he did not at all really understand its message. And so John Patton sat down and opened up the Word of God and took a man who was seen by many as being unreachable, untouchable, an impossibility. He sat down and explained to him the gospel. He prayed for him. He, he pled with him to accept Christ. And that man um, did. And after, um, 
After several visits and frequent conversations and prayers, he became genuinely and deeply interested, drank in God's message of salvation, and cried aloud with many tears for pardon and peace. He then destroyed his library, and he went on to live out the rest of his years by saying, This is the book now for me, speaking of the Bible. And adding, since you were here last, I gathered together, and he told how he got rid of all of his infidel books. As long as, as he lived, this man was unwearied and unflinching and testifying to all that crossed his path, how much Jesus Christ had been to his heart and soul. And he died in the possession of a full and blessed hope. Another infidel, the, the next paragraph goes on to talk about who, just with anger at the end of his life, says, pray for me to the devil. I won't turn. And... Um, Patton reminds him, well, if you believe that there's a devil, you must believe that there's a God. And the man said, yes, and I've hated him in life. I will hate him in death. And, and just the, the irony of, of that um, hatred that a man could go to his grave hating God. But you know, the reality is there were many like, the first there were many like that first illustration who, because of a man who had a heart of faith, who understood that the battle was not against him. And there were many things that, as you read the story, it's very intriguing of how many different attacks came his way. And he trusted God through it all for deliverance. And God provided miraculous deliverance time and time and time again. But it wasn't because he was sitting back. And that's really what it's going to come down to for us. It's, victory is going to come as we step out in faith and trust God for the deliverance. And if you're here and your heart is yearning as my heart is to see God break through, to see God deliver, don't sit and yearn for it. Step out in dependence upon God, knowing that he who calls you will deliver. And as he's done it in the past, he will do it again. Remember, these rules of engagement, and by God's grace, would we step out in faith. Father, would you encourage each heart here?